my parents would probably say Eric was a rebel without a cause. Um, and he was just, he, he was always the one pushing boundaries in life. Um, and so maybe it was more born into my DNA than bred into my DNA. And, um, but I, I've always been the one to think differently, challenge things, um, you know, not per se thinking of the entrepreneurial spirit of the ups and downs and the financial ramifications of failing or winning, but more along the lines of problem solving and thinking about things differently than others have throughout my entire life. Hi, my name is Nathan Baumeister, and you're listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast where executives from the world of finance and technology share the story of how they got where they are and the decisions that made them who they are. I'm looking for hidden moments of truth and sacrifice, wisdom and folly, and what it's like to navigate the treacherous waters at the helm of a growing company. I want to do all that so that together we can learn from their journey and use that insight personally and professionally. In episode seven, my guest is Eric Sprink, CEO of Coastal Community Bank. Eric came to banking by night, working the graveyard shift in the bank call center while in college. And today, he runs one of the most innovative banks in America. His team has navigated an unbelievable path through the murky ocean that is banking and financial technology. They even spun up a separate company dedicated solely to banking as a service partnerships, using Coastal's balance sheet as the foundation. Divergent thinking is woven into Eric's DNA. His approach to leadership relies on his own particular brand of time travel and ferocious curiosity. As CEO, he's solving problems today and 30 years from now. In banking as a service, most of the difficult, complex work happens beneath the surface. Eric Sprink embodies that ethos, working hard on himself so that his team can succeed far into the future. And today, I'm thrilled to present you with the delightfully different mind of Eric Sprink. Get ready for another deep dive on Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief. Eric, what a what a wonderful pleasure it is to have you on Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief. Thanks for joining me today. Well, excited. Thanks for inviting. Absolutely. You know, uh, I would love just for just to get started for the audience, just to get a really quick introduction of who Eric Sprink is. Obviously, we'll go into a bunch of details of your life and the bank and all that fun stuff, but just as a good primer to set the stage. Oh, <laughs> well, we could park the car there for hours. Uh, I'm really not that, <laughs> actually kidding aside, not that interesting person. Uh, uh, married 25 years, three kids, uh, all in different uh, colleges at different levels. Um you know, and, and just a pretty simple everyday banker, um, been doing it a long time, but not that exciting life when all is said and done. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because, uh, I think oftentimes when we look at our own lives, we think, yeah, it's not that much of cool stuff going on, but other people (laughs) might look at it and be like, holy crap, that's amazing. What all the things that you're doing. Um, you know, I, I, when we talk to our guests here on Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, I always like to get started on what were some of the key moments kind of in your childhood and growing up that helped expose you to the type of leader that you wanted to be? As you look back to those years, is there any role model or is there any particular experiences or teams that you were a part of 
that helped to inspire you in the direction of the development of you as a leader? Um, yeah, you know, when you when you look back, it's it's easily, you know, to pick out, you know, some things that shaped you or helped create. And then, of course, we're all learning and growing and want to be better every year that we live. We want to be better in our marriage. We want to be better as people. We want to be a better leader. We want our companies to be better every year. Uh, but but you, you mentioned the word teams. Um, it, it's it's interesting. Um, and I didn't really realize this as I was growing in my own personal path. But when, when I was younger, I, I kind of played individual sports predominantly. So tennis, mm. golf, I, I still played baseball, uh, you know, through high school and what have you. But it was um, golf and tennis that I really spent most of my time. And those are historically seen as individual sports. Um, but but now having been the CEO, president and CEO of Coastal for a long time, you, you, you realize how individual and, and quite frankly, to be fully transparent, lonely, that a CEO position can be. And uh, it, it, so I was, I was thinking about this over life, right? And just saying, I wonder if, um, you know, being on the court eight hours a day growing up alone and that individual sport in context of being on a tennis team, of course, um, it, how much that really parallels being the, the CEO of Coastal um, you know, cause it, it is a different position in context of a great team with great teammates. Um, but you know, I don't know, it, it would go back to say my parents are fantastic individuals and my dad was a professor. And so he has a huge influence on my life and my mom and her, her belief system and influence on me as a person. And I think we we're an amalgamation of our life, right. Um, that you take different pieces of it and, and you look back and you say, I, I see this one trait coming from this one aspect of my life. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a really interesting insight because I think that most people, would actually say, as you're growing up, I want to make sure my kids are in team sports because I want to make sure they know how to play well with others. And I'm pretty similar to you. I did a lot of individual sports. It was gymnastics, diving, pole vaults. Like It was all about what I could do. And obviously, t- team members, and I'm sure you had team members on the tennis court as well. Yep. But in preparation to being a chief executive officer, and um, as you mentioned, and I felt this as well, the loneliness of being in that spot, what's your ability to be self-motivated? What's your ability to push yourself and figure out that even though you don't have someone right on the court with you, that when you're ready to just give up and not want to do anything anymore, how do you kind of push beyond? And I really haven't heard that advice before. That's, that's really, really interesting. I love that. Um, if we could talk a little bit, I'm curious, just uh, from a perspective of your dad, you said he was a professor. Uh, was he at, you know, taught at a university, I'm guessing? Yep. Yeah, at and, Arizona um, State University. Yep. Arizona State, which is where you ended up going for your undergrad. Well, I had uh, to take advantage of the free tuition, my friend. Yeah. Well, you and know, smart. The only school that would admit me. So there's two benefits. <laughs> Well, there you go. One of the things that's always fascinated me, and so I just ask you this question. The life of an entrepreneur, the life of a leader, the life of a, of a builder of, of, of banks or software companies or whatever is an inherently risky proposition uh, with a lot of unknowns. And some of the guests that we've talked to grew up in an entrepreneurial family. So they knew about kind of the risks that are associated with that and the ups and downs and the instability and those types of things. Sounds like you grew up in a family uh, which was more, you know, worked for a large institution, very stable, those different types of things. I'm curious if you reflect back on that, 
how you made that transition to seeing one type of lifestyle, if you will, and risk appetite to what you ended up doing in, in going out and being an entrepreneurial banker? Yeah, uh, interesting question. I, I really haven't thought this through, but I, I, my gut reaction is to say, you know, my mom and dad would probably, you've heard that saying, rebel with a cause. Uh, my parents would probably say Eric was a rebel without a cause. Um, and he was just... <laughs> He, he was always the one pushing boundaries in life. Um, and so maybe it was more born into my DNA than bred into my DNA. And um, But I, I've always been the one to think differently, challenge things, um, you know, not per se thinking of the entrepreneurial spirit of the ups and downs and the financial ramifications of failing or winning, but more along the lines of problem-solving and thinking about things differently than others have throughout my entire life, um, and 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 maybe that's playing out more in in this job I have now, is is that ability to question, think, problem solve uh, much more than manage. And you know, I, I tell everybody all the time. We hired a president of the bank, uh, you know, about a year ago, and uh, Kurt K. Rose is his name, and he's a much better manager of the bank than, than I ever was. Um, you know, but, but that complements my ability to, you know, really without a cause to, to say, okay, how can we be better next year? How can we play? How can we think five, 10 years down the road? And, and that's really what excites me as a person. Um, and that probably just comes from just who I am as a person. Yeah, absolutely. So the draw, the draw to building for you, isn't the adrenaline junkie, I'm going to live on the edge type draw. It seems like more the thing that excites you, that invigorates you is finding problems and trying to figure out ways how to solve them. And it's through that, guys, that you found yourself that, well, if I really want to do that, then I, I need to build stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's there's no junkie. I, I agree with that. We're, we're in a heavily regulated industry. So it, it's it's more <laughs> just the personality type. Maybe it's some of my own flaws presenting themselves as, as strengths. Um, but I have trouble sitting still. I have I, I, I've openly said I couldn't run a bank that was just clipping coupons and, you know, hoping to sell the bank and get a change of control in three years. Uh, that just does not interest me as a human being. And so uh, I like the opportunity to grow and, you know, pu push the boundaries and problem solve and many creating my own problems. Oftentimes I'll say, Eric, just keep your mouth shut. Why do you keep talking? Um, because now we got to dig out of something or build something or do something a different way. But I, I enjoy that aspect tremendously. I, I think I think I have the, the, the best job that I could ever have for me right now is uh, being able to you know, reinvent constantly. One of my favorite books is Andy Grove, um, you know, where, where he talks about in the book, uh, only the paranoid survive. Mm -hmm. And he, he says openly, you know, I fire myself every year because the, the, the worst thing a CEO can do is become complacent in their success. And he would fire himself every year and say, why does a new CEO need to come in to reevaluate the business? How can, how can I motivate myself to continual change and have this mantra of next year, we have to be better than this year and this year we're better than last year. And, and that's what really excites me. And I enjoy a little bit of that chaos, I would call it. Um, that, that to me is, is really what gets me out of bed. It, it also keeps me up at night. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it's, it's a strength and a weakness simultaneously, but I really do enjoy 
um, the opportunity I have. Yeah, absolutely. So as you, as you started, uh, working towards your professional career, got your undergrad, um, there in Arizona and, uh, you know, as I understand it, went right into banking kind of as soon as you graduated as well. Is there a time that when you can think back to those, that, that early time between college and your first couple of jobs where that idea of problem solving and kind of being comfortable with chaos and those types of things really started to uh, manifest itself? Yeah. And, and interestingly, uh, just to clarify the record, I, I started at Security Pacific Bank and this will lead to the answer to your question when I was 19 in college and, hmm. and then randomly just let me digress here for a second. But, um, we, we, I was going to dinner at Wendy's one, one night and one of my fraternity brothers was in a suit and tie at Wendy's getting food. And I said, what are you doing in a suit and tie? And he's like, well, I work at security Pacific in the call center and you know, it pays nine twenty five an hour in, in 1989, 1990. That was good money and really flexible hours. It was call center 24 seven. So you could work around your, your, your school schedule and, uh, flex schedules using today's terms. So we, I said, man, get me an interview. He's like, yeah, definitely. They're always looking for people. So, um, I started in the call center, you know, working nights and weekends and, and I was given the graveyard shift probably cause I was the least qualified, uh, individual that they had met, but yet still hired. And it was great. I absolutely, I hated the hours, right? Cause it was usually that 12 to 5 AM shift, something in that time frame. But I was literally the only person in a 50,000 square foot office complex answering the phones. But, but it enabled me to see all aspects of the business because I was literally the only one there problem solving. And if mm. you're getting a phone call between you know, midnight and five, you, know, you can interpret the customers that are calling you. Either they're getting off their work shift themselves or they're getting up early for their work shift and they have a need. So they're calling the bank. Well, no departments are open. And they've got this 19-year-old kid answering the phone that's uh, below average intelligence. And so you, you need to be able to scramble and problem solve. And I loved it because I learned everything I could about the bank and banking. And the, 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 the bank was gracious enough to continue to feed me as much knowledge as I was willing to take. And I had a huge appetite. How many 19-year-olds do you know that have a huge appetite for banking knowledge and relish working in a call center at 2 a.m.? Not many. And this experience is core to Eric's success as a banker. He is relentless at solving real problems for real account holders. It would have been easy for him to archive this lesson as he climbed the corporate ladder. He could have buried himself in earnings reports and people management. Instead, He's leading a bank that is happily obsessed with helping individuals and small business owners move forward financially in addition to their banking as a service innovations. It didn't happen by accident, and the road to get there was bumpy, as you're about to hear. And so I really got to know everything. So this manifested itself into this problem solving uh, ecosystem. And, and then shortly thereafter, Security Pacific Bank and B of A merged. And this is really getting to the heart of your question. And back in, I, I forget when the merger was, I wanna say 92, but don't hold me to that. B of A and Security Pacific, there was still 
inter-intra-state banking laws in place. And each state had its own corporation. And so there was a CEO of B of A Arizona, a CEO of B of A California. And consequently, each state was empowered to have their own course stack of technology. And, And it wasn't until you know, a little bit later that these, these mega mergers, when Security Pacific and B of A merged, they tried to start to integrate all of the systems of the states. And it was ironic through that merger. I don't know if this is publicly known, but well past any worries, but in in Arizona, um, B of A opted to keep Security Pacific Bank's operating systems. Mm -hmm. And B of A in all of the other states was the larger predominant mergered partner. So they kept the B of A systems. So we were kind of the outlying state. And so our customers in our states experienced the most issues. Our debit cards weren't talking to the core operating systems in the other states. And if our customers were traveling, they, they, you know, it wasn't as seamless as I know our banks had hoped the merger integration would be. If you remember the old big bank mergers in the early nineties were generically awful. Um, so again, it, it started with this problem-solving mentality, and um, I was given a ton of opportunities while still in college because I had access to all of the systems throughout the entire country, and I knew how to solve problems for consumers. And so, you know, this this mentor, soon-to-be mentor of mine, named Vicky, Vicky called me and said, "Hey, um, actually, she had an opening," and I called her and said, "Hey, I think I can help you." And I'd really like to get out of this 5 a.m. to, to, you know, I mean, midnight to 5 a.m. shift and um, I I can help you. And she said, great, I would love to have you. And then that just kind of vaulted my career, um, you know, to successively get more and more leadership opportunities. You know, by the time I was still a senior in college, um, finishing up. I was a, a district coordinator, you know, for 30 plus branches and, um, and probably given too much opportunity for a young age, but I took advantage of it and, and, you know, I didn't screw it up too bad. So that problem solving skills manifested itself into opportunity and probably just reinforced the ability, you know, the strengths and the weaknesses I have. Yeah. No, I love that. I, so I have two, two different, um, thoughts that I want to take down based off of those experiences that you shared with us. I think one is, as I've oftentimes shared, um, that it does, the years of experience doesn't matter. It's how much learning you got in the years that you did. Right. So there's the old adage. It's not, it's not how old the car is. It's how many miles it's, it's, it's done. And so I love that as a college student at a call center, instead of just thinking, Oh, I'm just going to answer the phone, do the best I can. It's in the middle of the night. These probably aren't you know, the most important customers and I'm just here to collect a paycheck. You're like, screw that. These guys are important and I'm going to figure out how to, how to answer all their questions and how to pull all these pieces together. Um, That curiosity and that drive to understand, I think is just such an amazing aspect of, of kind of your personality and oftentimes a super important trait in a leader. The other thing I want to pull from is you, you introduce us to Vicky and knowing your story a little bit, I know that she was pretty instrumental in your career progression. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about Vicky, what you learned from her, not only in just helping you grow your career, but then how you later could be a mentor to others. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, so 
Speaking about Vicky in particular, uh, as an individual and as a business professional, uh, she was fantastic and, and very well respected in the financial services industry. And uh, you're right, she she had as much an influence on my career as I did. And uh, I think that mentor-mentee relationship is very critical in society. And we, and throughout my entire career, um, have tried to replicate that in different forms. But yeah, so working for her, she did give me a lot of opportunities. Uh, My half of the equation was to earn those opportunities. You know, really from her, I learned a lot about um, professionalism, organizational design and structure. She was a brilliant individual, is a brilliant individual that could operate within these huge bureaucracies, you know, eventually uh, at Bank of America after post-Security Pacific Bank, as she kept getting more and more opportunities, eventually she she herself going to North Carolina um, to to run a retail bank there and and inviting me to go to North Carolina with her and where I I was able to continue my education at UNC Chapel Hill for graduate school and and give me that opportunity. And, you know, I, I... I think you're right. It, it plays such an important role. And uh, part of my personal leadership style is based on my faith and servant leadership and um, trying to give back as much as I can and uh, being the one to humble myself and say, hey, my job is to take care of the team around me and to provide for them so that they can be successful. And then by definition, over time, you know, the right things will happen for the corporation. And, and it's that mentality I think she instilled in me very young in my leadership career, uh, right? When I was uh, uh, an in-store branch manager for her and then a very large traditional bank branch manager for her and then a regional manager for her, um, those leadership skills came from her directly and, and just learning from her as an individual. And really, I worked with her for 10 or 11 years straight to where I was reporting directly to her. And so it was that continuity, the protection, allowing someone with my mentality and creativity to make mistakes, but in a safe environment um, is one of the critical uh, pieces I think I bring to an entrepreneurial corporation. You know, I think it's what the board gives me today that, and it, it's, it's that ability to grow and learn and pivot. And, um, so I, I think you're seeing a confluence of her teaching me and then me taking that, those next evolutionary steps through my own growth patterns, uh, and trying to give that to a corporation. And now with 500 employees, um, I don't have as much of the direct one-on-one as I would love to have because I truly do having with the employees when we were 100 employees or 200 employees or 300, you know, growing to 750 employees uh, to 1,000 employees. But what I do still control are our core values, uh, you know, as leadership and and our philosophies. And and I try my best to continue that vein and and keeping the organization within bounds uh, of those leadership traits going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, 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 I want to go to this transition from like individual contributor to leader and some of that evolution that you've had there. And you touched on some of that where it starts with, you know, I was learning, trying new things, making a lot of mistakes to I was hands on and knew all the employees to, okay, now it's a big enough organization. The way I could steer the ship is through principles and values and those types of things. But before that, you brought up something that I think is super interesting. There is, I would say I run into this quite a bit 
there's this idea of needing to be perfect in the workplace that I always need to get an A. I always need to get a hundred percent. I always need to make sure that every time I get up to bat, I can hit the ball. You know, we could use whatever metaphors that we want, but you and I both know that's never going to happen. Or if it is happening, you're not pushing yourself enough for growth. So share with me a little bit, especially when you're an individual contributor, how you dealt with making these mistakes and errors, which I'm sure, you know, you were pushing the boundaries of what could be done. You were in a very difficult situation where there was multiple systems, a huge bureaucracy, different cores that were being transitioned, like all those different types of things. How did you learn how to balance this idea of trying to, you know, be perfect and doing the right thing versus knowing that every once in a while you're going to stumble, fail and trip? I love it. And and I will tell you that one of the things I talk with my team here at Coastal a lot, my, my intimate team, is I find that they are perfectionists. And, and I love that in them because they, they push hard. They want to be perfect. And I love the role that I have that gets to ease the pressure and, mm-hmm. and, and let them. Now, uh, I also have to clarify the record. And you said, Eric, you make a lot of mistakes. You've obviously been talking to my staff as well. I said, I'm, I've made some mistakes. You, you interpreted that as a lot, but you also know me pretty well, Nathan. So I'll yeah. let that color commentary just speak for itself. Um, I think it's probably more reflective of me thinking about myself than you, Eric. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I have made a lot of mistakes. And, and you're right. A lot of that's growth, um, you know, as I mature, as I, as, as I transition from different leadership styles, as, as, as the different um, skills transform. You know, I have, um, I have a, a, a book that I absolutely love. It's the worst read on the planet, but uh, it, it's a book by uh, Elliot Jackson. It's called Requisite Organization, and it's from the 60s, and it's a really thick, dry book, leadership book. And But I, I, I read that, and, and I loved a lot from it, and, and I've leaned into that a lot throughout my career. It talks about the requis, requisite organization, and it relates to timeframes, and leaders think in different timeframes. And, and you talk about a producer going to, um, you know, a leader that goes to someone that is expected to eventually build for the future, right? And and, and those are different time frames that really someone tries to think in. And, and we often think about that as a service associate that's dealing with a customer in front of them. We try to empower them to think in three to five minute intervals, and to solve mm-hmm. problems within that context. And, and then, you know, as our producers grow and evolve and, and that now they have to think in timeframes of quarters or annually. And then, you know, we have some executive vice presidents that we hope are thinking in one to three years. And then we have group executives that are hopefully thinking in three to five. And then I plug that gap between five and 15 years and the board plays with me a lot in that range. And then the board's real expectation is, you know, how does this in- industry evolve and, and where are the industry evolutionary points and how does coastal survive, right? And, and you can go to Smith's book about, you know, how, how do corporations survive 100 years? Um, so it, it, you go back to this transformation and making mistakes and, and giving the air cover for that. You know, the structure I use, and, and it's not a structure, I don't want to get too professional there, but it's my, my basis in thinking stems from helping people understand as they grow, their thinking needs to change and they need to evolve as well. And I can help them with that. And I often use that backdrop to help them do that. 
Um, you know, and that, that really gives me a framework to communicate better. And, and it also, you know, imagine the different leaders in the companies addressing problems or evolutionary things that are presenting themselves and, and the being able to communicate that in different time frames. So the stuff that worries me right now is how am I going to transform our earnings in the years 2028 to 2035? Mm. And, and I get panicked a lot and I get excited about stuff that when I talk to other people, they're, they're not excited about it and they're not panicked. And so we got to be able to translate that. And that's usually a translation of time. And um, because if we're one degree off today, 10 years from now, we could be completely off the mark. And the person doing something today in the three to five minute interval or the person that's thinking one year and building stuff for this year, uh, they're absolutely perfectionists and I love them and they're usually much smarter than me and they're nailing their job and, and we've got to talk to them and, and help them and they need to help me understand, okay, now we need to shift one degree because it, you are successful and the company is in the top two percentile for every metrics and, and I need you to break it. This is the voice of a builder who has watched companies fall from what looked like unshakable market dominance. Blockbuster, Nokia, Kodak, and many more. It takes incredible mental fortitude to look at the stellar performance of your company and recognize that it's a wave. Waves rise and fall, and the only way to stay on top is to swim for the next wave. This is especially difficult when the market rewards short-term profits over long-term vision. Leaders like Eric choose discomfort and disruption on their own terms, building and rebuilding the company again and again. It still can hurt, but it's way better than waiting until the market knocks you down. And because here's what I'm worried about, and, and I, I love those conversations, but they're also very hard and they're confusing and people don't understand sometimes. And, and, and I get, I get, you know, worried or scared. And they're like, Eric, what, what are you possibly worried about? And I'm like, well, I'm paranoid. And go back to the Andy Grove book and, and we have to be better next year than we are this year. And, and we have to be a heck of a lot better in five years. So, um, you know, it's just, but I, I love that aspect of it, but it gives me some structure behind the scenes to communicate, lead, give value, protect people um, when we do make mistakes. And I say, again, this stems really from our board. Uh, I have one of the best boards on the planet and they give me this flexibility and freedom and, and aligning with them to align with the staff really is what makes it work top down and top's not me. Top is the, our board. Yeah, no, I, I I love that. So two two questions that I have based off of that. We'll just start with the first one. Um, when you say that you know we want to we want to break things or we need to break things, what do you what do you mean by that? Because I I love the concept and I think I know what you're talking about, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, and and maybe breaking is or isn't the right word, uh, but I appreciate you you highlighting it. It, it. it allows us to be okay with change. Mm -hmm. and, and, and evolve. And the commitment to, I mean, something I, I, I was so proud of, I don't know, I was in some meeting with, um, you know, the teams and, and regulators and uh, one of our employees um, said, hey, you know, I, I, thanks for the feedback, Mr. Regulator. Um, we're going to be better next year. And we're not declaring mission accomplished and, and we're going to relook at things constantly. 
And, and that mentality of evolution, not revolution, but evolution and having that ingrained in the system is, is something I'm, I'm proud of. Uh, and, and that's maybe not breaking things constantly per se, but it's about evolving and being willing to rethink things constantly. And if that means breaking something, that means breaking something. And if that means tweaking something and uh, uh, adding that next piece to it, but, but I'll tell you this, you know, when, whenever we hire somebody from outside of the organization, I, I'm really frank with them and says, hey, I absolutely love what we have, but I'm hiring you to reevaluate it, yeah. right? You have a unique opportunity, a fresh set of eyes coming in to opine on what we are doing well or not, because it, the hardest thing to do and what we fight the most is becoming complacent with our success. And uh, the society wants to keep reaffirming you're really good. The regulators, re you know, will, will tell you good stuff. Your auditors tell you good stuff. Your board tells you good stuff. And, and that complacency starts to creep into a bureaucracy. And then before you know it, three years later, you're not that good. You're average. Uh, the society has caught up with you. The uh, evolution has, you know, ceased. So, um, you know, it comes back to our core values and, um, you know, trying to continue to be better. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, you know, I, I take the tie back to what you're saying of breaking things. And the key that I got from what you just said is being willing to break things, right? You're not so married to any particular thing that you're not willing to, if it makes sense and it's the right thing to break it. And then the other thing that ties back to that you shared before is every year I think about, okay, I'm fired <laughs> and now I'm hired. I mean, I'm the new guy. What am I going to do? What, what is the right thing to do? So that from a mindset perspective, you can kind of have that blank slate to then move forward and think differently or have a different frame of reference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, and that's also the fun side of things. Um, it, it's, um, it's, it's hard for any leader to continue to evolve. Um, and, and I think you said it right. And, and, and maybe in my case, I'm not smart enough. I'm just worried. I have three kids in college, so um, I don't <laughs> want them to hire a new CEO. So, you know, <laughs> Uh, invention is, or necessity is the invention right vehicle that we all use. Um, yeah. I, I think it's just a framework that has helped me personally. It may not be right for everyone, um, but it allows us to to not feel threatened with, "Hey, my idea failed." or it didn't work, or, or I'm not the smartest one in the room. And it gets rid of a lot of the stigmas of, you know, I mean, and outside of my pet projects, which are all perfect and nobody's allowed to change, I just want others to feel like their projects are allowed to evolve. Those other things that other people are working yeah, on. Not mine. I want them yeah. to feel comfortable. Mine are always perfect, but no. And, and I think if you were to ask the team, you know, th this is absolutely true of my ideas. It's like, hey, uh, no pride of ownership. And I, I hope and expect the, the smarter people than me to take an idea and, and have fun with it or kill it and, and debate why. And, um, you know, and, and sometimes we get boxed into certain stuff and, and we, we believe in gray thinking. We believe in being flexible in a regulated environment. And it's all about problem solving and it's all about evolution. Yeah, no, I love that. The other thing that I couldn't help but think as you've shared your story and, you know, early career, um, had a mentor in Vicky. One of the things that you mentioned is, is, you know, she provided some protection or safety, if you will. And I can't help uh, notice that when you talk about 
your current position where you are, oftentimes about your board, one, how much you respect them and how great of a board they are, but also that there's this level of confidence and trust and safety of, of willing to push the envelope. So how I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how, how as a leader can you create that type of environment? You know, how was it created for you beforehand? How do you create it now? How does that board provide that for you? Because lots of times to be able to take those risks and thinking, if you are scared or you're running off of fear, you're probably not going to do your best work in that type of that type of work. I, I would say that it has evolved over time, but but you you have a core group at the my board that hired a 33 year old to be president and CEO. So mm. they were pretty entrepreneurial to begin with before I got here. If by definition, they're like, let's give the keys to this kid. Um, and the, but but I think they were looking for something that matched the ecosystem at the board level, which was uh, very entrepreneurial, very inventive uh, within a regulated environment. Of course. So I, I think over time. You know, we still have founding core board members, but, you know, out of the 10 of us on the board now, you know, we, we've added a, a new board member about every other year. Um, and then w w that culture has stayed true. And I think the board members we have now are very engaged. Active is another way to say that good, bad or indifferent as a CEO's perspective. Um, and but but entrepreneurial at its core that they realize that we're in a heavy regulated industry and to still steal a Billy Bean philosophy. It's an unfair playing field uh, having to compete with the national banks, the regional banks, even the super community banks. Um, you've got these micro community banks like I consider us the underdogs. And how did the Oakland A's manage to fight with the Boston Red Sox, Yankees, LA Dodgers, right? And, and, and you have to change the rules. And I think you, your board has to realize that. And so we've been very cognizant as we hire new board members over time, slowly evolving. We pick up core competencies or technical backgrounds, but the culture and the values are very akin to how this bank was founded, right? We're 25 years old as a bank, um, but that spirit has still remained. And, and you're right. Uh, the board protects me. I feel that way. You know, I know if I go outside of certain bounds, I'm not protected um, as any good governance would have it. But, but really, it's also about engagement with the board. Uh, and this is true of all of our philosophies that you hear. It's not, I'm not a rogue CEO that's a, definitely not brilliant that thinks of a magical idea and says, we're doing this. No, no, no. It, it's very engaged with the team. It's very engaged with the board and the board is very engaged with me. And so it's a collaborative effort of evolution. A CEO's relationship with the board of directors can make or break the company. The public tends to focus on the charisma and competence of the CEO because those things are easily visible. It's much harder to know if a chief executive is communicating openly and candidly with the board and vice versa. The board should be a group of trusted counselors, otherwise it's just for show. Ideally, you're looking to fill that table with people who are deeply invested in the health and success of the organization as a whole. You want as much of their wisdom and firsthand experience as you can get. And it's it's about seeking input and and getting engagement from the board and the bounds with them to then give the guidance and the protection 
for evolution. And I, I can give them that honest feedback, good, bad, or indifferent saying, hey, it didn't work. We failed in this. And they'll understand how and why we made those decisions because they were engaged in it. But, you know, they were also uh, thinking through the upside, downside risk protections um, in a context that allowed us to continue to build towards the long-term vision that they they own. So I, I think that engagement at all different levels allows for the protection, right? And I, we were recently negotiating with another CEO of another company, and it it, it was really weird. Um, and I, I we we caught ourselves the two CEOs talking one day, and she's like, "Man, you know, my she she said my board." trust me to fully do this negotiation and make this decision. I'm empowered to do that. And I said, that's great. I said, my board just operates differently. I want their feedback. I want them engaged because if I screw this up, I want them also on the hook. Um, right. And so it, but it's, it's more familiar than that. It's like, I trust them and our decision-making processes, I think over time are better. And, and that also allows me the freedom to bring, a lot of ideas to them. And, and my job is to give them ideas or strategies to then debate and talk about. Um, and so it's just about different styles and it doesn't make her style bad or their board bad or indifferent, but that's just our culture and how we have evolved. And, and for me, that works perfectly. So it's got that full alignment, which I believe allows for better decision-making, which is allowing us over time to continue to outproduce the industry. I have to stop and make sure that our listeners understand the masterclass that Eric just gave you on how to create safety in almost any environment you can find yourself. And it's all about collaboration and cooperation. Um, Eric, I share with my team, I say, you never want a ta-da moment <laughs> because half the time, maybe even 75% of the time you get in front of your board or you get in front of your leadership team or whatever it is. And you say, Hey, I just had this new idea. It's fully baked and we're going to do it. Ta-da. Most of the time it just goes into silence like, wait, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? I don't, you know, and then you lose trust, you lose respect. However, if you include all the people that you need to work with in the process, the evolutionary process, the thought processes, getting their feedback, one, your output's going to be better, but secondarily that trust and respect and that safety is going to be so much stronger. So thank you so much for sharing that. That was that was beautifully beautifully said and beautifully taught. So thank you for for doing that for us. Well, I, it, it's a truism, and as a leader, it's hard. It takes it more hard. time. It takes extra effort to communicate. Um, and 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 I'm very fortunate. My chairman, in particular, uh, is very tolerant of me and reminds me all of the time to make sure everybody's up to speed and everybody's included. And, and he, he bears a lot of that load as well, which um, sure helps having leadership on the board that is willing to put in the extra engagement for this yeah. philosophy to be pulled off. To follow along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, there's one piece that we talked about a little bit ago, and I just want to circle back to it because I think this is oftentimes a question for people who are trying to end up as, uh, you know, a, a builder, as a chief executive or some other C-level title, which is experience versus education and how much education should I get? And uh, our guests, we've had a wide variety of what they've done, whether they've done grad school or not graduate school of banking or not undergrad, all that fun stuff. You ended up deciding to, to, you got your undergrad, got some work experience while 
getting your undergrad and then post undergrad, and then you still did make the decision to go ahead and get your master's. I'm just curious, at least for you, what were kind of the deciding factors? What did you think worth it, not worth it? Any frameworks that you thought of for that? Because I know this is something a lot of people struggle with. Uh, yeah, I, I think you use the word individually for you, Eric, and and I, I would agree with that mentality to begin with is everybody has a different path. And, and you know, one of the things I love about being a banker is dealing with all of our entrepreneurs. And we get to see the successful people and, and the failures in society, right? Because we're either giving them money or taking their money, one, one, whichever way you want to look at it. And, and then as we've evolved into CCBX and our, our Bass Banking division, we get to see even more finite leaders or entrepreneurs in the venture capital world. And um, so I, we too get to play this game of, you know, why did you get where you got and why did you choose that? And each story is a hundred percent different, you know, whether they're new to this country and they're driven by something in their past or they're driven by their family for higher education, which gave them the opportunities or whether they're just different challenging individuals that want to build something and, and they hate the office job. Uh, for me personally, I love school. I, 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 you know, if I, if I ever, if the board were to ever fire me and get me out of here, I'd probably go back and get my PhD because I love it. Uh, and I love that philosophy and I love that structure for me personally. So I was excited when the bank said, yeah, we'll support you going back for your MBA. Um, I was like, that's fantastic. Right. And, and I'll eat that up um, all day because for me personally, that's stimulating. That's right. Working on business cases. That's what business school really is about is you get the business case every week and you get to read about a company and then you get to think about how they're going to solve their problems. And then you get to hear how they did solve their problems. Um, and so that's, that's something I enjoy personally. And for me, that was applicable to my life and my job and what I wanted to do and where I was in life. So it was an easy fit for others. I can't say that, um, you know, each, each road is different. I will tell you some of our best performers have graduate degrees and some of our best performers never went to school, never went to college. And, and I, they sit in the same room with me and their opinions are equally weighted and equally dynamic and equally strong. Um, so as CEO of our company, I could care less. Uh, it means nothing to me. Um, in society, maybe there's stigmas attached to stuff. I don't know. But but we, we sure enjoy people for their thought process, their individuality, their creativity, their problem solving. And, and whether that is given to them or whether they had to learn that thought process and that problem solving capacity, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, I love that. We share that philosophy at Z Suite Tech as well. I don't care how you got where you are. It's what is the skill sets that I need right now? And do you have those? Yep. And however you got those, I, you know, it's all good. I just need to know that you have them. <laughs> exactly. it, it school, it might be through experience. It might be you're just naturally gifted at something. Uh, it's funny that you said that if you, you know, were fired tomorrow as CEO, you'd go get your PhD. I actually share that. I've looked a couple of times like, I wonder if I could get my PhD while I'm running this company, which the answer is, is I can't. <laughs> it's way but I do have, um, I'm curious, do you know what you would study? Have you uh, thought about that? Who, who, whatever, who, whatever university would accept me in whatever, yeah, you just, in whatever program would accept me. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that there are a lot of things that I get excited about organizational design and theory, um, 
comes top to mind, but I, I love the theories behind finance and math. Um, obviously, the banking traits and, and the money theories, right, uh, play into my who I am as a person. Uh, but yeah, I, honestly, I, I would spend some time thinking about that and then try to find the, the best one for me that, and then hope somebody would take me. Yeah, no, I love it. Now, uh, you've, you've been super generous with sharing so many different experiences that you've had throughout your career. Um, the, the last thing that I wanted to touch just from your career and if any, you know, lessons learned or fun stories that you could share with us is, so you were 33 when you became the CEO of Coastal, right? Well, president first, but yep. And then I had a two year overlap with the CEO. And then two years later, I became the CEO. Yep. CEO. You've been there for a long time and you have seen, you've overseen some uh, great amounts of growth. You're doing some of the most innovative things that I've personally encountered that, uh, that uh, I can't even say bank of your size because it's a bank of any size uh, that, that you're doing. As you've, as you've had these types of success, this type of growth, how is it that you personally have been able to continue to evolve as a leader um, to, to, to manage that growth? Or what have you seen as the big changes that you've had to make within yourself to stay relevant with that growth and continue to push the organization forward? Yeah, I mean, this is my 18th year here running the company. That's a long time. Um, this company probably deserves new, fresh CEO leadership in due time um, because it is hard to continue to evolve and grow as a person to continue to lead the corporation into different seasons. And, um, you know, I think of it like a rings of a tree. You can see the, the how, how – you know, how good the rainfall was one year by how fast the tree grew that year, right? That, that analogy in banking is probably the reverse. The, the harder it is in banking during a given year, the more my leadership grew, um, you know, the drier it was uh, caused more growth. And, 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 and I, I, there are distinct different phases over those 18 years, right? I, I, I became the president and CEO, right? Going into the great financial recession. I learned great timing. a lot. <laughs> uh, right. I learned a lot. That was a great training ground for me as an individual. Uh, post that, um, we we were able to take advantage of the dislocation in the market because, you know, within five miles of us, uh, there was a tremendous amount of dislocation or chaos or bank closures or consolidation, if you want to call it that. And, you know, and then and then became a stable, happy time to where we had to redefine ourselves and I had to redefine myself because, just keeping your doors open no longer was winning the business. Other CEOs were regrouping and they had raised capital. And now they were in this happy period that they wanted to take advantage of the market. Um, And then you you can see each of these seasons that we go through as leaders. um, And, and I, I, and, and you can correlate that also to size, growth, number of employees to a certain degree. And I talk about this a lot with our companies that we bank you in your company, we can see the entrepreneur starts a company, grows the company, and then it needs some managers to to come in uh, because the, the entrepreneur, the, the visionary, really may not be the best manager of the company going forward. But their strengths and their weaknesses don't always align. So recognizing humbly my own strengths and weaknesses has allowed me to grow and hire the right teammates around me as I have evolved 
you know, I, I specifically remember a huge inflection point that during 08, 9, and 10, and we're, we're fighting for our life. I've got a wife. I've got three young kids. Man, I wanted to make every single decision. And, mm-hmm. and I was the epitome of a micromanager, good, bad, or indifferent. But the, the board empowered me to get engaged in that way, shape, or form. Um, you know, it, I, I'd love to glamorize it and say, hey, coach, give me the ball because we need me to have the ball right now. But really, it was me being scared. And uh, I wanted to make sure I understood every single thing about every single customer and about every single line item in this company. Um, and then to be able to evolve out of that mindset to where our next phase was rapid growth and taking advantage of the dislocation. I needed to hire people that could make those decisions so I could position the company differently, i.e. moving to the capital markets to raise capital to feed that growth, continue to have the vision of the company evolving, continue to look at new products and services, continue that, that, that next evolution of my role in the company. But that also meant giving up things to people. And, and, and then now that transformation that happened in me, I've been able to help some of my teammates give up those day-to-day decision jobs so that they could evolve and they could start looking at the evolution and the vision and get out of the day-to-day. And right, and just that's translated through the whole company as each of us reaches those different time frame inflections. Um, you know, it started with me learning that and really embracing it and then saying, God, I, I really want to give others this. And really, that's where we some saw some leaders get capped out because they they liked making the day-to-day decisions. I'm like, well, this company needs you to be thinking three years from now, and you're thinking one year at a time or, or monthly or quarterly. And and do you not want to do that, or do, can I help you do that, or, or do we need to bring someone in for that? Um, you know, that, that was a great inflection point. And then as, as we started looking, you know, you, you – we're kind of kidding me offline about Microsoft in Bellevue and Microsoft Teams is having issues. And that was probably caused by Coastal. And we were laughing about some stuff. I, I will say I loved it when Bill Gates came out because, right, this is our neighborhood and said, hey, you need banking. You don't need banks. And this really caused another, you know, quantum shift in myself to say, Banking, you know, and that was, if you you date yourselves, that was back in 14 and 15. And you have some banking laws changing because of the Great Recession. You had Dodd-Frank rolling out 5 million pages of new rules and regs and can and can'ts and shall and shall nots. And to really apply that to opportunities that were being created or opportunities that were being shut down. And listening to, again, we're very fortunate that in our market, we have Amazon, right, headquartered here. We have Microsoft headquartered here. We have Expedia, Redfin, and all the biotech and all of the innovation that we are so blessed to be around. Our neighbors speak this language. Our neighbors live this language. Um, It really enabled us as a board of local board members to hear this and say, okay, things are changing in financial services Eric, you really now need to sit back and get out of even what you were doing and keep going up in the time frame that you're thinking about and hire the right people that can get you out. Um, and so right there, it, it really took me from a three to five year mentality to a 15 to 30 year mentality. And the board was pushing me to do that, to say, Hey, you need to bring us opportunities, which now 
fast forward eight years later from 2015 to that next learning leadership development of myself. Now fast forward to 2023, 2024, we're a leader in an innovative division of financial services, banking many Fortune 500 companies and doing cool stuff. But, but right now, that stuff happened in 2015. What I'm working on now is 2035 stuff. You haven't heard Eric talking about parsing lines of code or squashing software bugs. But that's because those tend to be a problem on a short time scale. And he's hired specialists to tackle that stuff. He's thinking about what banking or financial technology will look like in 15 to 20 years and assembling components that nobody else has considered putting together. Having creativity and vision is one thing. Marrying creativity and vision with reality is a whole different ballgame. And that's the game that Eric Sprink is playing and winning. People want to talk to me about Bass because I have to translate numbers today. I have to translate performance today, which is fine. But I love it when my investors and our staff really say, where are, where are you at, Eric, in 2029? What are the problems you see? What are you? What is exciting you? Um, and that, and, right, and for me, that's super fun, which is why it was so much fun for me personally, again, in my leadership evolution was to become a general partner in Bank Tech Ventures in our fund we created, looking yeah. for the new venture capital-based SaaS companies that are going to evolve financial services 10 years from now. And that's how you and I got to meet each other and through your yep. very entrepreneur, innovative company. And I love talking to these individuals that are going to change financial services 10 years from now. And, and today they're saying, hey, I need some money to do it. And we get that. And, and I don't know. So, I, again, I could talk about this all day and I have a ton of fun doing this. But I've had to change at many different inflections of the rings of the tree. And that's why it goes back to that core philosophy. It's OK to change. It's OK to grow. It's OK to fire yourself and start new and, and answer the hard questions that you're afraid to ask as the existing incumbent. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those different stages that not only your company had to go through, that you had to go through all throughout that journey. I also love the tie. I, I had never put this together that one of the reasons that you're so excited to be a general partner of Bank Tech Ventures is partially because it actually helps you do your job to think about and be exposed to things that is going to be influencing the industry in 10 years from now. And the learning that I would take from that is when you're a leader, whatever horizon you're looking at, because like for me, we're a startup company. Uh, my horizons are days, weeks, quarters, and maybe a year, right? Yeah. Um, but as the company grows, then it'll be start becoming three to five years and then five to 10 years and you know 20 to 30 years, et cetera. But wherever you're at, put yourself in a place to be with the thinkers, to be with the visionaries, to put yourself in a place where you can have that information coming through you so that you can be better informed to be able to make those strategic decisions. So I love that. Um, all right, so I have two questions that we wanna, that we wanna end with. So these are ones that we always ask, ask our, our, our guests. <laughs> the first one is, well, first, you've already shared a couple business book recommendations. We'll make sure to put it in the notes. We'll definitely note that one of them is super dry, but the principles are great. So maybe read the Cliff Notes version. Um, but we, we appreciate that. But we always love to share our audience maybe with some non-business books. 
uh, that have influenced your life or that have helped you to, uh, to, to, to be a better leader or just maybe just to entertain you? Yeah. And, and, and gosh, uh, it's a great question. Um, I, I will, <laughs> I, I will tell you that the, the go-to genre, because I have, well, three teenage daughters are so they're graduating from the teenage years, but you know, I, I always enjoy the read, reading the books. My kids enjoy reading, which tends to be sci-fi fantasy, you know, yeah. young adult fantasy. I, I, but, but, but I'll tell you, I, 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 it's hard for me not to read any book and relate it back to business in some way, shape or form. It's a disease I have. Um, it's just how the brain is trained. I, I, you know, I'm watching football and I'm constantly thinking, you know, or Moneyball. I'm, I'm thinking watching baseball, thinking Moneyball behind the scenes constantly. It's hard for me to enjoy stuff, but I'll give you a book. But it's let us put our money together. The founding of America's first black banks. We're, we're the financial institution behind Greenwood. Um, that is what what is self described as a black and brown neo bank or challenger bank. Ryan Glover is the founder CEO, brilliant person. But it was founded needs based, much like all companies. Your company is solving a need, um, and. You know, I read this book because one, I wanted to learn more about why they started their challenger bank. What, what are the needs not being met? And but I also wanted to understand uh, this book. What happened in in Greenwood uh, in Tulsa, and and what what transpired? And so it's it's a hard read. I, I mean, I'll say that because you can't help but be empathetic um, and and understand how our country has evolved and grown and learned and is hopefully uh, better next year than this year. I think everybody would agree we want our country to continue to strive to be better. We're not yeah. perfect by any means. I think people agree with that as well. Um, but it's a fascinating story uh, dating back to individual communities would collectively get together to empower their community. And, and that's my brain talking business, but it's also fun hearing the stories upon the, the entrepreneurs that started that bank and how they got together. And you, you, you can apply that to today back to their story back then. Um, you know, so it's a book I'm in right now um, and I enjoy it a lot. Um, you know, but it, it, for me, that's why. I'm reading it because it meant something to me to read it. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, like I said, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And uh, you have uh, you're you're in good company here. The sci-fi fantasy genre is one that I enjoy as well. <laughs> and part of the reason I enjoy it so much is because it's something I could do with my kids as well. Yeah, I, I right. just finished one at home that uh, my kids put me onto the Inheritance Games. Uh, it's a bestseller. It's a trilogy. Uh, it's a super easy read. So don't think I'm a total geek. Everything's business, but so that's a fun one you can just read if you want blind entertainment. It's a good, easy read of the inheritance games. There you go. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And now our last question, um, is a leader born or is a leader made? Uh, yes. You know, right. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll stick with this theory that each person's path is different. Um, sometimes, uh, I believe, you know, we, we are born with certain traits that are good, bad, or indifferent. And then I think society will mold those traits for good, bad, or indifferent. Um, people have different environments that they come from, which helps them or hurts them. And, uh, each story is born beautifully by the individual. And uh, I'm smack dab in the camp of, you know, sometimes you're given undue advantage in society take advantage of it. Sometimes you are giving uh, undue disadvantages in society. And that also gives you the motivation to excel and be better. And 
you know, so, so sorry to dodge the question, but I'm, I'm a both guy. Yeah. Oh, it, that's not dodging the question. It's absolutely an answer. Eric, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. Um, I personally have learned uh, quite a bit that I'll be taking to help me in my leadership journey, and I'm sure audience will as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm humbled you'd, you'd invite me, and we appreciate working with your company and me getting to know you and and, and our investment in your company. It, it, it really is fun talking with you, so I've enjoyed this as well. So thank you very much, and hey, talk soon, my friend. Absolutely. This quote from best-selling author and podcaster Shane Parrish hits the nail on the head. You get paid linearly for doing what everyone else is doing. You get paid non-linearly for correct divergence from the crowd. Eric Spring has made it his mission to think differently and diverge from what the crowd of banks is doing. And Coastal Community Bank's growth is the proof. What strikes me more than Eric's creativity or his passion for innovation is his humility and focus on building a team that builds and rebuilds collaboratively. I can't predict where Coastal Community Bank is going to be in 20 years, but I'm going to be watching closely and learning everything I can from their example. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Learning from Eric is such a privilege and I'm honored that he was willing to share his insights with you and me. You'll find Eric's book recommendation in the show notes. Now watch out. He said the book Requisite Organization is valuable, but a challenging read. You've been listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast produced and distributed by Z-Suite Technologies Incorporated, all rights reserved. I'm your host, Nathan Baumeister, the CEO and co-founder of Z-Suite Tech. This show is written and edited by Zach Garver. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave us a review or share the episode. This helps other people to find our show. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. 